0: This morning, I invite you to hear these words from the scripture. God is our rock and our fortress and our deliverer. God is our strength in whom we take refuge. God is our shield and the giver of salvation. So let us sing to the Lord who is worthy to be praised. May we leave all the distractions aside for these moments and give our heart and soul and mind and strength to the living God this morning. Let's pray. Gracious God, awaken us today to the glory of your presence that is here among us and shine your light on us in such a way that the darkness without and within may be pushed back so that we might truly see what is real. Help us to recognize our sin for what it is. Enable us to see the world as you created it to be. Empower us to move from darkness to light, from sin to new life, and may your light within us shine through into our worship this day. We pray in the name of the Word made flesh, the light, which is the light of all people, even Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. We are in the third week of our teaching series called The Power of Hope. And it's been a series that's got a lot of people thinking and talking, and I do appreciate the feedback that I've received. And if you've missed either of the first two messages in this series, I encourage you to go on to our website, Uh, via uh, uh, the website or the Redeemer app, and you can listen to the podcast of the service there, or there are printed copies that are available in the lobby for you to pick up and take with you. Let me give you just a little bit of background on today's message called From Bitterness to Freedom. The Old Testament prophet Jeremiah appears on the scene about 100 years after the great prophet Isaiah. And for 40 years, during the reigns of Judah's last five kings, Jeremiah constantly is warning God's people of coming judgment. And he repeatedly appeals to the nation to turn back to God. But his words go ignored. And in Jeremiah chapter 29, God's people are now, uh, find themselves in exile in Babylon among people who were pagan and cruel beyond words. And it would have been very natural for God's people to hate them, to pray for the worst to happen to their enemy. But God, as he often does, offers a different command that is countercultural to what the world tells us to do. And God says, pray for your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hurt you. Radical stuff. But it is the path that leads from bitterness to freedom. And we'll get into more of that uh, in just a few moments. Pray with me, will you? Loving God, you have led us apart from the busy world into the quietness of this, your house. So grant us now the grace to worship you in spirit and in truth to the comfort of our souls, and to the upbuilding of every good purpose and holy desire in us. Enable us to do more perfectly the work to which you've called us to do, so that we will not fear when we need to give into your hands the tasks that you've committed to us. God, may we worship you today, not just with our lips, but in word and in deed, all the days of our life. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. I suppose that one of the hardest commands in the Bible to obey is the command of Jesus that we should pray for our enemies. In Luke's gospel, the sixth chapter, Jesus says, but to you who are willing to listen, to you who are willing to listen, I say, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who hurt you. It's hard because prayer is often the very last thing we want to do for our enemies, isn't it? Mostly, there are a lot of things that we would like to do for our enemies, like getting even or make them suffer like we have suffered. And when we're angry or hurt, prayer doesn't seem like the first thing that comes to our mind. In case you haven't been here for the first two messages in this series, let me give you some background on Jeremiah chapter 29. The year is 597 BC. King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon attacked Jerusalem and sent many of the people into exile. It was a humiliating experience for the people of God. It was also a punishment from the Lord because of their rebellion. In a true sense, they got what was coming to them, 70 years of captivity in a foreign land ruled by pagans Who did not worship God. Now, not all of the Jews were taken to Babylon. Jeremiah was one of those who was left behind. In chapter 29 is a letter he sent from Jerusalem to the exiles in Babylon in order to encourage them. Beginning with verse 4, this is what Jeremiah says. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says to all the captives he has exiled to Babylon from Jerusalem. Build homes and plan to stay. Plant gardens and eat the food they produce. Marry and have children, then find spouses for them so that they may have many grandchildren. Multiply, do not dwindle away. God's message to his people is unexpected. Jeremiah continues in verse seven, and work for the peace and the prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, for its welfare will determine your welfare. God's word to his people is very simple. I put you in Babylon for a purpose, and although I know you are humiliated and discouraged and angry, don't despair. Instead, pray for the prosperity of Babylon. Now look at the last part of verse 7 very carefully. Pray to the Lord for it, for its welfare will determine your welfare, here's a message from God to all of us even today. Some of us who hear these words today may find ourselves caught in a bad situation somewhere in our life, whether that's at work or at school or at home, someone has hurt us deeply and it is all we can do not to strike back. And with all of our energy, we can barely hold back the bitterness Some of it sloshes over the top now and then. We couldn't pray for our enemies right now if our life depended on it. But God says, do it anyway. That's the whole point of Jeremiah 29, verse 7. The word here used is shalom, the Hebrew word for peace, and it's used three times in this verse. Besides peace, it also means blessing, wholeness, completeness, the absence of conflict, prosperity, and here is the shocking fact, at least it would have been shocking to the Jewish exiles, God ties their blessing to the blessing of the Babylonians. Now this seems counterintuitive since the exiles were God's people and the Babylonians were pagans. God is really saying that they were better off in Babylon, and Babylon is better off because they're there. This is the Old Testament version of Jesus calling believers to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Said another way, we can summarize God's message in this verse this way. You need Babylon, and Babylon needs you. Now, immediately, we can imagine any number of objections the Jews might have raised. Hey, what do you mean, God? These people are pagans. They invaded our land. They destroyed our city. They burned down the temple that we built to worship you. They're vile people. They're murderers. They're thieves. Why would we want to pray for them? They don't deserve that. Now, this last point is certainly true. In fact, all these points are true. The Babylonians were not nice people. You really can't be a nice, barbaric killer, can you? There is no such category. To spread their kingdom, the Babylonians acted ruthlessly against anyone who dared to oppose them. Life was cheap. Death was easy. Torture was a means of sending a message to a future foe. God says to his discouraged and his dislocated people, I know you don't like it here, but it doesn't matter. You're going to be here for a while, so settle down and make the best of it. Don't treat the Babylonians as they've treated you. Try to bless them and be a blessing. Pray for the Babylonians. They certainly need your prayers. And you, my people, need to be praying. So as you pray, I will bless them And in blessing them, you too will be blessed. Now, nothing seems more natural to us than to hate those who have mistreated us. But God teaches us a better way. I know people who would say, you know, everything the world says, you know, we should get even. We should get revenge. The world says get even, but God says seek the good of those who have harmed you. The world says, get angry. God says, pray for them. The world says, look for chances to make them suffer. God says, look for chances to do something good for them. The world says, don't waste time loving bad people. God says, I want you to love them anyway. We need to pray for our enemies, and they need our prayers. If we don't pray for our enemies, who will? If we don't pray for our enemies, how will they ever change? If we don't pray for our enemies, how will they, we ever be set free from the bitterness inside of us? See, every time we are faced with people who mistreat us, we have three options. We can hate them with total hatred, but that really accomplishes nothing. We can struggle to hold back our anger, but that will emotionally exhaust us eventually, Or we can pray for God to bless them, and that opens the door for God to bless us as well. Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 7, raises some questions that I think we need to consider. And the first one is, where do our enemies come from? On a human level, there are many answers to that question. Enemies most often come from among those who are closest to us. And we'll come back to that in a moment sometimes people turn against us because of the foolish things we do other times we may suffer at the hands of someone whom we have done nothing wrong to people may ridicule us because of our appearance or our background or our personal beliefs or our ethnic origin or our skin color or our position in life or our money or lack thereof or for a million other reasons they may think that we're boring or empty or trivial or bothersome or an impediment maybe to their career. They may be prejudiced against us for no good reason. Perhaps they dislike us because we've succeeded where they have failed. Who knows? Enemies rarely explain themselves. But on a deeper level, our enemies come from God. God allows them to enter into our life for reasons that are rarely apparent to us at the time. And there's a story in Scripture, um, the case of Joseph and his brothers in Genesis chapters 37 through 50 that illustrates this truth. When Joseph's brothers threw him into a well and sold him to the Midianites as a slave, they only had evil in their hearts. And when Potiphar's wife falsely accused him, she lied because of her injured pride. And when he was thrown into jail, no one could foresee that eventually he would one day be the prime minister of Egypt, second in command only to Pharaoh. And even Joseph himself had no idea what it all meant until years later during a great famine when his brothers came to him seeking food thinking he was an egyptian they didn't recognize him because they believed he was dead a long time ago and then and only then did god's plan begin to come into focus that's why three times in genesis chapter 45 joseph declares to his brother brothers that god had sent him to egypt to put him in a position where one day he could save not only his family but a whole nation and preserve a godly heritage on the earth. Years later, Joseph utters those famous words that sum up his understanding of God's sovereignty in what his brothers had done. He said, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. You brought me to this position so that I could save the lives of many people. Only a person with a deep belief in the sovereignty of God could utter those words after suffering so much mistreatment. In the same way the Babylonians meant to conquer the Jews and humiliate them, God meant it for good. And not just the good of the Jewish people, but also the good of the Babylonians. And so where do our enemies come from? They come from God in this sense that if he didn't allow it, our enemies could not trouble us. Secondly, who are our enemies? In the broadest sense of that question, an enemy is anyone who turns against us. The dictionary defines an enemy as one who feels hatred toward or intends injury to or opposes the interests of another person. It's important as we think about this that we not restrict the term enemy to people who are terrorists or leaders of rogue nations. Our personal enemies tend to be much closer to home. In fact home is the first place that we need to look. Jesus himself said in Matthew 10:36 your enemies will be right in your own household. In that very passage he also specifies three very closely very close relationships that often go sour. He says a father and a son, mother and a daughter, mother-in-law and daughter-in-law. And We can easily infer from that list that that's not a complete list, but there are other close relationships that sometimes go bad, including parent-child relationships, husband-wife, grandparents, uncles, aunts, even various distant relatives. It certainly includes people at work, people maybe even who attend church with us. The enemies we are told to love usually are not people in some distant foreign land. Most of us will never maybe visit places like North Korea or Afghanistan, but we do have to go home every day and face people that may or may not be glad to see us. Every week we work with people who may dislike us. We may even come to church and see people we'd rather not see. And if this teaching of Jesus is going to work, it must work first in the relationships that are closest to us. God places inside every family some people who are going to rub us the wrong way. And I heard a Bible teacher once say that God puts in every family people whom he uses to prepare us for leadership in the world. He puts a Judas or an Absalom or a Peter or a Barnabas or a Timothy in every family. And that's why our closest friends, our strongest supporters... Our biggest critics will usually come from our own flesh and blood. We have to learn to deal with the people closest to us before we can impact the world around us. So let me be more specific. Our children might at times be our enemy. Our husband or our wife could be our enemy. Our parents might be the enemy. Certainly our ex-wife or ex-husband might be the enemy. See, it isn't just people who are out there somewhere, nameless, faceless, anonymous, evil people who are our enemies. Sooner or later, people that we love will often hurt us deeply. And at that point, and for at least that moment, they have become the enemy. And if we are honest enough to admit it, we have to become... We have become their enemies too. And something, something like that happened to the Jews who were in exile. They hated the Babylonians with a fierce hatred. Now I want you to consider the final words of Psalm 137. And some of these words in these next two scriptures get pretty raw, so I'm not going, you can read them for yourselves. I'm not going to read it just the way the scripture has it written in this translation. And I think you'll understand why. But in Psalm 137, verses seven and nine, this, the writer says, O Lord, remember what the Edomites did on the day the armies of Babylon captured Jerusalem. Destroy it, they yelled, level it to the ground. O Babylon, you will be destroyed. Happy is the one who pays you back for what you have done to us. Happy is the one who takes your babies and smashes them against the rocks. Have you ever prayed like that? Wow, strong words. There is no way to soften those words or to dim the anger that they express. The Jewish exiles are asking God to send someone to invade Babylon to do to them exactly what they did to Jerusalem and then destroy their family and their children in the process. It's hard to imagine closing a worship service reading that passage, isn't it? And yet we can't deny that Psalm 137 is part of the inspired text of scripture. Isaiah chapter 13 contains something similar. It's a prophecy of God's judgment against Babylon in verses 15 through 18, explains how God answers the prayer of Psalm 137. Anyone who is captured will be cut down, run through with a sword. Their little children will be dashed to death before their eyes. Their homes will be sacked, their their wives ravaged. Look, I will stir up the Medes against the Babylon. They cannot be tempted by silver or bribed with gold. The attacking armies will shoot down the young men with arrows. They have no mercy on helpless babies and show no compassion for children. Even though, even though the prayer of Psalm 137 seems extreme, God answers it kind of literally by using another pagan kingdom, the Medes, to come and judge the Babylonians, and that's how ju- God's judgment came on those who so badly treated his people, Israel. Now, it's not as if we have to choose between loving our enemies or hoping that someday they'll be punished. If we do our part, which the Scripture says is loving them and praying for them, God will take care of the judging part. In the meantime, we will be blessed if we work for the prosperity of our enemy and pray for God's blessing to be upon them. Now, if all that sounds kind of confusing and tough then just remember this. If we remain bitter, we're never going to get any better. If we try to get even with those who hurt us, we are most likely going to hurt ourselves in the process. And if we try to punish our enemy, we are usurping God's authority. But if we love our enemies and bless them and pray for them, things are going to go better for us, and they're going to go better for them. And we can then sleep well at night knowing that if they need punishment, God is going to take care of it in his own time and in his own way. And that is the real meaning of Jeremiah 29.7. Of course, it's easy to talk about all of this, you know, abstractly. It's much harder to love our enemies on a daily basis in real life. We are to love those who despitefully use us, and abuse us, and victimize us? It's not easy to do in any case, but it's much harder to love when we feel deeply and repeatedly violated and our trust has been destroyed. And yet Jesus' command remains. But to you who are willing to listen, I say love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, tough stuff isn't it we cannot we cannot escape jesus command it is a key part of our spiritual journey that leads from bitterness to forgiveness to freedom to say it another way we cannot be set free until we set others free to be blessed by god Well, that's as far as we're going to go today in Jeremiah 29.7. Next week is part two of this message, and we're going to talk about seven specific ways we are called to love our enemies. I hope you'll be here. Pray with me, will you? Lord Jesus, following your example and your command, we pray for our enemies today. We ask first that you would just saturate our lives with the Holy Spirit's power and might and send your love flowing through us. Forgive us for holding on to anything that would hinder our prayers, and we release any unforgiveness or thoughts of revenge or hateful emotions that would quench your spirit in our hearts. Then give us wisdom as we seek to know how to bless and love and pray for our enemies. We pray for you to bless our enemies and to orchestrate events in their lives that will leave their hearts exposed, open before you. We pray that you would give them a poverty of spirit that recognizes their deep need for you, and we pray that they will discover your comfort in times of mourning, or they will be humbled before you in your way and in your time, and we pray that you would show them mercy before it's too late, knowing that we are all God's enemies before you extended mercy to us, and that they in turn can learn how to be merciful to others. Lord, we pray that instead of following a path that leads to more evil, they would hunger and thirst for your righteousness, become advocates of your justice, and that their warring spirits would be changed into peacemaking, remove the facade of well-being, and tear down the lies that have been deceiving them and hedge their ways until they can see no way up, no way out but up, and we pray that you would show them the futility of what they're doing because in opposing God's kingdom and in their darkness, they are often oblivious about the true reasons for their behavior and resulting consequences. So God, reveal to them any deep hurts or traumas in their own life so that may be contributing to this destructive behavior. And then we pray for Conviction for an honest evaluation of their own destiny, for a sense of desperation, if that's what it takes, for them to consider your claims and to discover who you really are. God, pursue them, even allowing goodness to lead them to repentance. And give us patience, give us a deep trust in you, even when we can't see the changes taking place. And when we waver, not wanting to pray for our enemies, help us to remember your grace that's been poured into our own lives. And what would we be without you? God, we ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.